0: This is episode 20 with certified sports nutritionist, author of over 25 books, contributor to virtually every major media publication there is, and my brother from another mother, Mr. Matt Fitzgerald. Welcome back to the show. I'm Jason Fitzgerald, the head coach of Strength Running, and we're talking about something a little different today, how runners should eat. Now, I'm not a nutrition expert, a registered dietitian. I have no certifications in this area, and I certainly don't play a nutritionist on the internets. But what we're going to do is draw from other experts and In this field, to help us understand the nuances of eating for endurance. So I've invited an award-winning endurance sports journalist onto the program today, Mr. Matt Fitzgerald. His latest book is The Endurance Diet, and to write it, he's interviewed and spent time with a lot of elite athletes from around the world. Everyone from professional cyclists, swimmers, triathletes, rowers, and yes, even runners. And he teased out the five core habits that they all share when it comes to their approach to nutrition how you can adopt those habits and the science that surrounds this approach. It's a really interesting subject. And since I believe that the next big frontier in performance improvement is going to come from diet, there's a lot of opportunity to improve your own training by dialing in better nutrition. And thanks to our sponsor today, generation, you can a patented fueling product that stabilizes blood sugar, delivers steady energy with no crash or GI distress. And for the rest of the year, through the end of 2017, use code STRENGTHRUNNING, all caps, no space, for 15% off any product at generationyoucan.com slash store. All right, please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Matt Fitzgerald. Matt, thanks so much for being here. How excited are you for this? <laughs> More excited than I've ever been for anything else. <laughs> oh, that's just the answer that I was, I was hoping for. <laughs> and we should probably come clean. We are not brothers. I have probably at least one runner a week think that either I wrote one of your books or that I'm you, but uh, we just have a really great last name. That's all.
1: Yes, though I actually do claim you as a brother when people ask me the same question.
0: (laughs) That's that's fine with me. So (laughs) I, I think you and I have a very similar philosophy when it comes to training and nutrition in that you know, both of us look to what the best runners in the world are doing. And I think modeling our behavior on the best, you know, just like you do in nearly every other area like writing or business or academia typically produces the best results. And, you know, if we think about it, elite athletes are elites partly because of their habits. And, and I've spoken with quite a few pros, you know, like Shalane Flanagan and uh, Kimber Maddox and, and a lot of others, and none of them follow a formal diet in any way. So with that said, why are so many runners reluctant to either follow the training or the diet principles from some of the best runners in the world? I think that might be
1: the only question you have to ask to fill this hour. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we could stay on it the whole time. Yeah, you
1: because know, it, it, it's a huge one. I think a lot about this because I'm, I'm sort of like a a bit of an amateur sociologist. So I think a lot about this. I mean, it's a big problem if you're if you're in the role that you and I share, which is like trying to tell people how to train and and eat most effectively. You get a lot of pushback from you know like yeah. You know, Contradictory advice that people are getting from other quarters, or just people's own misconceptions—the inertia there—and you don't see this like you know this this huge dichotomy in endurance sports where the elites are doing one thing with training and diet, um, and then you know particularly like the the more competitive recreational types are doing other stuff and you don't see the same thing, like, you know, the the analogy I like to make is with bodybuilding, like, you you know, every time I go to the gym to do my little foo-foo functional strength stuff to support my running, you know, you see, like, recreational bodybuilders there, and they all do exactly the same thing that Mr. Olympia does, like, both in terms of, like, their weightlifting routine, I mean, they might not spend as many hours in the gym, but they they definitely model their their training and their you know supplementation i don't know if they actually eat but i know they take the same supplements as mr olympia and so there it's just it's just unquestioned like if and if you read a bodybuilding magazine that's what most of the articles are it's like here's mr olympia's shoulder blasting routine and then you know people read it and they do it in endurance sports so i haven't even answered your question yet the the why but um it's there are definitely reasons for it you know and it, it it's it's a big issue you know that and that's kind of why I take the angle I do in some of the stuff I write like like this latest book the endurance diet
0: yeah it's such an interesting phenomenon because for for me and you know I have a lot of friends who are what I would call competitive runners you know they're they're not elite or professional by by any stretch of the imagination but you know we're talking Guys who can run in the two twenties, two thirties, two forties for the marathon, so they're competitive, but you know they're they're obviously not uh, getting a Nike sponsorship, and they they all of us kind of look to the best runners in the world to see what kind of workouts they're doing, how they structure their training and their seasons and all their progressions, and also you know how they eat and and all those. Um, you know, uh, the different facets to that. And it's always just boggled my mind because, you know, I think, you know, we look at the paleo diet or our high fat, low carbohydrate, and all these things are, have been really popular in recent years, but I don't see any pro runners adhering to these diets. I don't see any very good runners adhere to these diets. And so I'm just constantly baffled. Yeah.
1: I think you know part of it is I think there you know because I have put some thought into this and, and there's definitely more than one reason part of it sad to say is just how um, kind of how visual people are that to make a very dangerous anal- uh, analogy you know how like sometimes if um, if a college football player hits a girl um, and he gets like a two game suspension and then a tape comes out like a video and suddenly he's kicked off the team it's like well It was the same incident, (laughs) but a picture made all the difference. Um, To go back to the you know bodybuilding analogy, you know when when a person lifts a lot of weights and eats a lot of protein and takes the right supplements, he blows up. He just gets huge. But when a a, a runner with the the genes to be an elite goes through the process of of getting in shape, they don't look any different at the
0: end of the process.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I think we are so we are so wired as humans to just we need to be slapped upside the head with evidence that something is so um and so you know if you just if you you know could have, have a if you could be a fly on the wall for the process of you know watching one of these athletes go from completely out of shape to you know olympics shape you would see wow this stuff really works <laughs> but in, in the when you, if you just go by the visual it's like well you know, he didn't get shredded. So, uh, so maybe the paleo diet's best.
0: Yeah. And the r- running does have that disadvantage, I think, because, you know, I just look at my own running. It doesn't matter if I'm in the best shape of my life or the worst shape of my life. I look pretty much the same. And, You know, it doesn't make any difference between, you know, with my family and friends. They have no idea if I'm running 90 miles a week or 20 miles a week because there's no physical changes. And I think we need to see those to be able to kind of judge uh, how effective something is. Um, Right. Now, look, on the flip side to this whole argument, don't we also have to recognize that elites are elites mostly because of their genetics and because they are quite literally genetic freaks of nature. They can perform physically in ways that us normal runners can only dream about. So is following their their training or nutrition habits misguided in some way because they're essentially not like us?
1: Yeah, I get I get that a lot. Um, and again, I have never heard anyone suggest anything like that with respect to bodybuilding. You know what I mean? It's like, well, you know, yeah, lifting heavy weights works if you're a genetic freak but if you're just a 90-pound weakling, you should lift very, very lightweights because your genes are different. It's like, what? (laughs) That doesn't make sense to anybody, you know, and and endurance fitness is just as fundamental and basic as strength or muscular hypertrophy. It's just, it's as raw and primitive as it gets. So, you know, we really, you know, we should really apply the same logic. Uh, Of course, there's logic and then there's actual science. And, you know, in the book, I get into this, like the genes that make um, elite runners different from the rest of us really have nothing to do with how food is digested and metabolized. So, you know, they're different because they're naturally tiny, uh, because they're naturally very fast. That This is so often overlooked. The, the best marathoners in the world are just scary fast sprinters. You know, they're not the fastest, but these people have a ton of raw speed um and they also they're obviously you know aerobic uh titans as well but you know none of the none of that none of the genes underlying any of that have implications for you know what what we should eat um yeah, we can get deeper into this obviously obviously there's a scaling factor you know because you could do the same thing with training right it's like you know well i can't run 130 miles a week like like so and so elite runner does no but i mean you know, that's that's not the principle. The, the principle is not everyone needs to run 130 miles a week. The principle is everyone should do, uh, you know, high volume, mostly low intensity, which enables high volume relative to their personal limits. So, yes, you, you have to scale in order to apply the same principles um, in training and, and you have to do the same thing in with diet. You know, if you're if you're only running 25 miles a week, you do not need 4000 calories a day unless you're eight feet tall and weigh 300 pounds, uh, all muscle. Um, Yeah,
0: that's such a good point because I think, you know, what a lot of runners, a lot of runners will look at the mileage levels. They'll look at the grueling track workouts and they'll think, well, that's just way too hard for me. I'm going to go do something very different. And the, the, the real lesson there isn't the 120 miles a week or, you know, the 10 K worth of, of speed work on the track it's the principle of let's run high mileage. Now, high mileage is going to be different for a lot of different people. Um, and in the same way that, you know, a lot of the, the diet lessons in your book are, um, you know, these are principles. They're not you're not really advocating for a specific diet. Uh, I, don't, I don't think you're advocating for certain foods But you are saying, you know, there are accepted principles that are going to work for every endurance athlete, no matter if you're slow or fast or somewhere in the middle. And I think there's so many parallels between the training and the diet as well.
1: Yes. Um, And just to to tie a bow on this, when 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 I'm asked the same question by just a, a Joe or Jane runner, not in an interview context, usually if I just want to succeed in making the point or or persuading the person i'll I'll skip over the the genes and everything i just told you and give them examples Uh, you know so i i I work almost only exclusively with you know recreational athletes i don't have many elite athletes coming to me for help with their diet but when you know when recreational endurance athletes come to me for help i put them all on this diet (laughs) And the results are terrific consistently. Um, So there are, you know, and there are, there are those, you know, special cases, you you know, the, the testimonials that you trot out, you know, to, to demonstrate the results. And sometimes I'll just cite those examples. It's like, you know, this woman, you know, lost 200 pounds by training and eating like elites (laughs) do.
0: So it's incredible. Do you have, do you have any specific examples that you could share with us?
1: Yeah. Well, the, the, the one, my, my recent go-to example is a woman named uh, Sue Reynolds, just because again, you know, there's such a thing as outliers, but you know, I prefer to think of these as, you know, just kind of, you know, extreme cases that make the broader point. And so Sue was a woman who was a non-athlete, mostly sedentary and and overweight throughout most of her adulthood. And she just got to a point in her uh, late fifties actually You know, by then it's just, it's kind of, it's all said and done by that point. You know, if if you haven't lost weight and kept it off, you're never going to, but just something kind of snapped in her one day and she decided, you know, I'm, I'm good. Cause she had gone on a million diets, had lost weight, you know, losing weight's the easy part. It's keeping it off that most people that trips up most people. But so this time she, she just, she just kind of knew I'm, I'm going to see it through this time. So she started off the way she usually had just by, you know, uh, severe calorie restriction, uh, not really relying on exercise at, at all initially. But then, you know, when she just when you know, cause and she knew she could lose the weight cause she'd done it before. But when it came to that next phase where she had to step beyond where she'd ever succeeded in going before and, and keep it off, then she started to exercise and you know, she was still so heavy. She could only walk at first. And, you know, I'm sure you've talked to people who've had this kind of experience, the, the, the magic of the first finish line. You know, she was able to walk a five K eventually and she was just hooked, and she wanted to be able to run a 5K, so she started running. Uh, from running, she got into triathlon, um, and now she's, she's in her uh, uh, early 60s, and she, she has lost 200 pounds. She, she went from 335 to 135, and now she's a World Championships qualifying age group triathlete. Um, wow. And I've gone in deep with her. She's come to me for a little bit of advice. I I am not her nutritionist. She's just come to me, you know, know, for just for for kind of high level guidance. And she's read a few of my books and applied some of that stuff. But um, in interviews with her, I've sort of gone in deep with exactly how do you train? How do you eat? And she gets all of her guidance from kind of mainstream folks like us who, you know, believe in, in just monkey see, monkey do with respect to elite best practices. So
0: that's that's how she eats, that's how she trains um and two hundred pounds yeah, two hundred pounds is two hundred pounds that's uh she lost almost two of me, so that's really impressive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Um, let's uh, let's talk about some of those principles, some of these these guidelines that that runners can implement in in their diet to to help them fuel more effectively, just have more energy throughout the day, and hopefully maintain a, a healthy weight. What are, what are some lessons we can draw from how the elites structure their diets?
1: Yeah, so there were kind of five core habits that I identified in my research, um, and number one is uh, what I call I frame these as rules, and not really rules; they're habits. But number one, framed as a rule, is eat everything, um, and that means just what it sounds like. Um, you know, I, I found in, in my research very, very few you know vegans or vegetarians among you know professional endurance athletes. Uh, exactly zero paleo people because they'll eliminate entire food groups like grains. These people they they don't they don't consciously avoid. Food categories. Um, and when I say eat everything, I, mean, I also mean that they eat um, unhealthy foods too. That, you know, they're not people who try to completely eliminate all sweets from their diet or all fried foods from their diet. Um, when we get on to habit, habit two, which sort of cleans that up a little bit, because um, they don't eat equal amounts of, of everything, but they do, it, it's sort of an all inclusive, omnivorous diet um, that is almost universally practiced. Uh, by the elites,
0: sounds um, pretty standard to me. It, almost, almost boring, even. But yeah, I, I, I think that's—I th- think that's the point, right? The point is they're—they're they're not going to an extreme, which allows them to cover their nutrition bases, but it also makes it really sustainable in the long term.
1: Yeah, and this kind of gets back to you know why—why why isn't everyone doing this already? Because um, you know, not, not to put too much blame on. <laughs> on the athletes we're trying to uh, uh appeal to here but you know people tend to want sizzle they want sexiness because you know if, if you just take like a, a very typical athlete who's trying to get better their stumbling blocks are major like they're, they're like hey i weigh 20 pounds more than uh, i need to or like i get injured every six weeks you know they, they've got some pretty major obstacles to success they're trying to get over and that makes them think, I need a, I need radical solutions. And that's part of what predisposes people to go, you know, for uh, shtick instead of, you know, vanilla stuff that actually is going to work. Because they're like, you know, I, I, they want to believe that there's something radical out there that will give them, you know, kind of a radical transformation. Um, but, you know, I just deal in the truth. <laughs> you know, I, ultimately, I, I feel like, you know... I'm not going to sleep well at night if I just, you know, sell a lot of books peddling something that I know isn't really valid. I, I don't care what the truth is. It would be nice if the truth did have uh, sizzle to it. But if the truth is vanilla and mundane and, and some people just aren't going to pick up the book because it's too vanilla for them, uh, you know, so be it.
0: <laughs> but come on, Matt, alternative facts are a lot more fun. <laughs> uh Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we won't go there. Um, so what's the what, what's the next principle? You said the, the second principle kind of cleans up the first uh, rule, if you will, which kind of allows us to eat whatever we want. Or I shouldn't say that. I should say it allows us to eat any type of food.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I I, I would go even a step further just to, to finish off, eat everything. Like, I think people should eat everything. Um, and there there's more than one reason for it. It's, I mean, there's a reason. Just like with the, the training, you know, the the way, you know, the the common practices among elite endurance athletes all over the world and even across disciplines, they exist for a reason. And they didn't. That's not always what you know. If you go back 60 years, that's not. They weren't training then like the way they do now. They do it because it works. So eating everything, you know, it, what I find is when, when athletes eliminate food groups, sometimes they can get away with it, and sometimes they get away for with it for a little while. But um, it increases increases risks for things for going off the rails, you know, things like iron deficiency, anemia, or just inadequate carbohydrate intake that will lead to symptoms of overtraining, yada, yada, yada. You just, you know, you're just making it harder for yourself by eliminating food categories. And that's why the elites just don't go there. Um, So then, yeah, moving on to uh, uh, habit number two, eat quality. So yes, they do eat everything, including sweets and the occasional beer, or a glass of wine, but uh their diet is heavily skewed toward what I call high quality food types. And it, the 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 concept of diet quality is um it's critical. It, it's it's just not you don't hear it in the popular discourse on diet much at all. Scientists, nutrition scientists deal with it all the time. And because again, you've got um you've got uh you got some shtick involved where you know, there are lots of efforts made in, in popular diets um, to to find some quality or some characteristic, I should say, um, that all good foods have in common and maybe another characteristic that all bad foods have in common. So you want like a theory of what you should eat and what you shouldn't. So just to go back to the paleo diet, the theory is if it's old, it's good. And if it's new, it's bad. And and doesn't that make things so simple? <laughs> You know the only problem is it's not true. Um, so you know people try to come up with all these concepts that they can shoehorn in uh, between you know input and and results, you know input being the food you eat, results being health and fitness. But ultimately, what scientists have done is they don't care what the, what the concept is. They just care about what gets you the results. And, and they simply haven't found any one characteristic that all good foods have in common. So they just talk about quality. So they'll do epidemiological studies where they'll just take a look at what people in the real world eat and what it gets them. You know, do you have a higher or lower cancer risk when you eat more vegetables? Do you have a higher or lower risk of heart disease if you eat more fried foods? Those sorts of things. And sort of by definition, if you get better results, it's a high quality food type. And if you get worse results, it's a low quality food type.
0: And now, um, you know, I have a question for you, Matt. Is sure. is a high quality food the same thing as a very nutrient dense food? Uh,
1: no. <laughs> I would say all high quality foods are nutrient dense, but that's not necessarily the thing. You know, it, it's just it because you know you can pull high quality nutrients out of a food, put them in a supplement, and they they don't have the same associations anymore. So it just it's kind of just like, it's the food, you know, the, <laughs> you eat it and it does you good, you know, some, you know, so, so yes, um, I, I
0: mean, think I, I actually, I, I just came up with a great analogy. I think, let me know if I'm way off base. A vitamin is a nutrient dense food. I'll put that in air quotes, but it's not a high quality food. There you go.
1: Yeah, that that's what I'm getting at because that's the temptation. It's what, you know, Michael Pollan called nutritionism. We, we don't want to just think in terms of food. We want to think in terms of what's inside the food. And that actually gets you in trouble. It, um, it, it actually is the whole package that that we find these associations with. So, um, so yeah, it, which is good news because, you know, if you're not a nutrition scientist or a biochemist like, like me, I'm not, um, you know, it just you can sort of keep your focus on the forest and not have to get lost in, in the trees, um, you know, and – And that will actually lead you to the the right habits. So that's what, you know, so what what is, you know, endurance fitness is not the same thing as health, but there's a lot of overlap. And usually what's true of health in terms of diet is also true of fitness. So so if you eat something and it's good for your health, it's probably going to support endurance fitness as well. So, um, yeah, so I just, uh, I have my own system. I created, because uh, the Nutrition scientists they have their own um, ways of measuring uh, diet quality, but they're a little unwieldy just for you know everyday athletes to use. So I created my own. It's called the Diet Quality Score. Um, there's an app for it, which everyone listening should find and buy. Um, but it's a lot easier than counting calories or even food logging because you're doing everything by food type, not by specific foods. Um, and it's just a way of um, because everyone looks at their own diet through rose-colored glasses. So if you ask someone you know, do you have a high quality diet? They'll say, you know, 99% will say yes. But then when you actually score it, it's not, not all that good. So it sort of forces you to look in the mirror and see how you're really eating. And then it makes it, it a lot easier to systematically improve your diet. Not that it has to be perfect. I, I didn't find, you know, any ad, endurance, uh, elite endurance athletes in my research who had, you know, a perfect diet quality score every day. But there is sort of such, such a thing as good enough to get the results uh, you seek. And, um, so, so that's critical. Um, and there's, you know, I order these things in the, in the way I do for a reason. So there's a reason diet quality. I talk about that before I talk about macronutrients because you know it's, it's more important. You know, if you eat everything and you skew your diet heavily toward the highest quality foods, there's very little else you, you have to, to worry about though. We will talk about three other things you have to worry about.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I remember interviewing Nancy Clark a while back. And, um, you know, we were talking about calorie counting. And she said that you don't need to count calories, the body is the perfect calorie counter. Once you have enough, it will tell you that it's full. And as long as you're eating high quality foods, then that feedback mechanism is really all you need. And it's the simplest, it's the easiest, and it gets you the best results.
1: Yes, yeah, and actually you know, you know what else helps a little bit as well as is, is actually exercise, you know where our our internal calorie counter, um you know it was you know evolution fashioned that mechanism when activity was just de rigueur, you know you it's it was you had to be so your calorie your internal calorie counter works best when a you eat you know natural foods and b you're active, and of course, by definition runners are active. So we kind of got that that base covered.
0: So we have runners need to eat all the food. We have runners that need to skew towards high quality foods. What other habits are going to help us eat healthier and perform better?
1: Number three is, and this could be a quagmire as well, <laughs> uh, eat carbohydrate centered or, or carb centered. Um, you know, there's, you know, people just love to talk about macronutrients, carbs and fat these days in particular. Um, you know, again, all I just, all, all I was trying to do with this book is just observe, um, and, and pass on. So, you know, in, in, in my research, um, I found that elite endurance athletes, uh, maintain almost universally what I would call carbohydrate centered diets. Um, and I, I intentionally did not use the term high carbohydrate because then you get into your scaling issue again. You know, if you you know are a, a twenty mile a week runner and you weigh 115 pounds, you're not eating enough calories to eat a high carb diet. You know, it's just you're not eating a lot of anything. <laughs> but but I think the the principle that needs to apply to everyone is carbohydrate centered, which is, you know, regardless of how much or how little you eat. What I found with the elites is that they have high-quality, high-carbohydrate foods as a centerpiece in every meal and in most snacks with the exception of sort of targeted, uh, you know, carbohydrate-fasted workouts, which they will do, you know, very selectively or at times like a, you know, um, a low-carb recovery day or even like a very brief um, kind of weight-cutting phase where they they may
0: go low-carb. But the base diet is is carbohydrate centered. Now, why is that? I mean is, is that because it's just generally more healthy, or does it provide a much more uh, concrete performance benefit?
1: Um, it's a couple of things. First of all, you know if you if you look at all of the you know, major cultural cuisines around the world, they have a, a starch one or two, you know, starch staples, you know, that are at the center of it. So, you know, in South America, traditionally it was potatoes and, and maize, um, you know, in North America these days, parts of Europe, wheat, um, obviously in the Orient, a lot of places you got rice, but everywhere, everywhere you go, that's just like, that's kind of natural. And one thing I, I like to point out when kind of just sort of trying to make sense of this way of eating you know, the elites way of eating to people is that it shouldn't be any great surprise to us that the diet that's optimal for endurance fitness is sort of contiguous with the way we've always kind of (laughs) eaten until we invented wonder bread, you know, like, because you're still a human, you know, just because you start running marathons doesn't mean you've become another species that has like, you know, suddenly radically different needs than other humans need. Like, yes, you're putting your body under a special kind of stress, but still, you, I mean, would you really expect that, that suddenly, like, all the rules get flipped on their head, you know? So that's just not the case. So what, what I found is, and that's why, that's one of the reasons that people don't generally make the observation that elite endurance athletes in different parts of the world actually do share a common core diet. It's because we, there are superficial differences in the specific foods we're eating. You know, the example I always give is, um, you know, Kenyan runners eat ugali three times a day. Canadian cross-country skiers eat none. Does that mean they're on different diets? No. <laughs> they're both on carb-centered diets. So if you, you scratch the surface, uh, that's when you start – I've completely lost myself. What was my point? <laughs>
0: <laughs> we were talking about the performance benefits uh, oh, yeah. if there yeah, are Oh, yeah. So any. Why?
1: why? Yeah, you said why is that? So one reason is that it's just you know, no matter where you grow up, um, if you g- grow up eating what's culturally normal for your environment, you're basically going to be on a carb-centered diet. Uh, The difference with elite endurance athletes is that they tend to eat very little of the low quality carbs that the rest of us eat so much of present company excluded, you know, uh, you know, refined grains and and sugar mainly. Um, And then, so they're, they're not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. They're still eating a lot of carbs. They're just eating the, the high quality ones. So, you know, the other reason just so forget about the, you know, that, you know tradition and and culture and all that. So even if none of that existed, in point of fact, a carb carb centered diet is best. It does produce better results for endurance athletes, and it's just because carbs are, are rocket fuel. Generally speaking, you hear all the anecdotes out there, but you know you know what the preponderance of evidence shows is that people can handle handle higher training loads when they have adequate carbohydrate in their diet, and they tend to. Um. Uh, get more uh, beneficial adaptations from their training when they have enough carbs in their diet. Um. And then, you know, certainly when you, if you're going into any uh, sort of extended endurance race, you will perform better if you are well adapted to burning carbs for fuel and you're well stocked with carbs when you, when you start the race.
0: You just said something really interesting. You said that if you're eating a high carb- carbohydrate diet, then you might actually get better adaptations from the running that you're already doing. Is that because you're recovering faster? Is that because you're performing at a higher level? So you get just, just an extra uh, or a stronger stimulus. What What is, do you know the mechanism there?
1: Yeah, I think there is more than one. Um, some of it has to do because all of this gut comes down to genes. You know, your are the, the stress of exercise will, you know, uh, uh, upregulate and downregulate different genes that that you know change morphology, that change your your body so that it can handle the stress better the next time around. One of the problems with uh, low carbohydrate, it, well, there are a few things. Like one is like you'll you'll finish any given workout, any any different you know long hard workout, uh, and in the recovery process have much higher levels of inflammation uh, if you're on a, a, a low carb diet. So that's one problem, but th- there are, are multiple ones. Uh, an, another is that, um, if you, so I- if you have a low carb diet and you take on a high training load, you you get really good at burning fat actually, but you sort of get bad at burning carbs, <laughs> you know, cause your body just works with w- whatever you get it. And so you sort of just, you sort of, you know, if, if you're, if you're think of yourself as a, uh, High-performance vehicle with five gears, you kind of lose your top two gears. Like your your VO2 max will decline because you're really good at at burning uh, fat, but fat is a very inefficient fuel source. So it just it simply takes more energy to run at any given speed um, if you've lost the ability to use carbohydrate effectively for fuel. So it's it's not any one thing. There just a, it's kind of a a nexus of of problems you you uh a hornet's nest you run into when you go low carb.
0: It's really interesting. Um now I I'm curious. You've talked a lot about the 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 principles that are present among all these elite runners and how they eat and and how there's you know this general uniformity uh among their all their diets. But when you were researching this book, did you come across anything that was surprising? Did any of the pros that you interviewed have more of a different or an odd approach to their nutrition?
1: You, you still do find, uh, you know, the occasional athlete, even 15, 20 years ago, this was a lot more common, but you still find, you know, the Bill Rogers types who are just living off Fruit loops and stuff. <laughs> usually they're younger. And usually if you, if you um, talk to them or their coaches, they are having problems that you know, are related to it, but some can still, you know, they seem are kind of the exceptions that prove the rule. You just, um, and that that's uh, that's you know, actually, you know, if I to contradict myself, if I were going to identify sort of one of these habits that is the absolute number one most important one, uh, it, it would be to eat enough, because that's what that's the thing that allows some people to get away with the with a Fruit Loops diet is that at least they're getting enough. <laughs> calories to just, you know, survive the onslaught of, of high level training. But I did, uh, I did find, uh, some of those athletes, um, uh, but they tend to, you know, from what I saw, not they're younger, which suggests that either they learn the hard way to, uh, trade fruit loops for kale, or they, they don't stay in the sport at the elite level that long, but still they do exist.
0: Yeah. Now is that, is that habit number four, which is, which is eat enough food?
1: Yeah, exactly right. Um, Because I I
0: know that's an important one because I I get a lot of runners who want to combine training for a hard race, you know, like say their first marathon or they're trying to get a Boston qualifying time. And they also want to diet at the same time and they want to cut their calories and, and their energy intake. In addition to doing all this hard training, and, and I always say, let's do the weight loss first. Let's do you know a short weight loss cycle. Get your get your weight down a little bit if you need to, and then we can focus on on the training if if you want to structure it that way. But let's not let's not start cutting out calories when when you need them the most. Yeah,
1: um, because you know this here's an example where um, you know being a, an endurance athlete is very different from being a, a, a mere citizen <laughs> so because you know the problem in in our society in societies like ours is that most of us are overeating and so we tend to think of that as the problem and you know and as uh, undereating is not a problem under undereating is actually the solution to being to being overweight but for an, an endurance athlete actually you don't want to do either you don't want to overeat under or undereat but if you're going to err in either direction as an endurance athlete you actually want to overeat because what happens if as long as you you train what happens if you overeat well you have plenty of fuel for your workouts so that's not a problem you have plenty of fuel for recovery and adaptation so that's not a problem um you have f- plenty of fuel to sort of you know help your you know bones joints muscles whatever uh you know s- stay solid and and not break down not that not that this would guarantee you don't get injured but so the, the problem is that you'll just show up at the finish line above your optimal racing weight. That's the problem with overeating, and, and that, that is a problem. But if you undereat, your workouts are a disaster, your recovery goes down the toilet, you're much more likely to get injured, and you never even make it to the start line. <laughs> so, so the consequences of undereating are much greater for, for an endurance athlete athlete. Again, you know, you want to thread the needle um and and have it uh have it both ways but that's just sort of you know just a a little little bit of perspective for people who are just used to thinking like dieters think.
0: Yeah, dieters and endurance endurance athletes might as well be two entirely different species. I think their their needs <laughs> are very different, uh their goals are very different and when you start combining the two approaches it just you know you, you essentially accomplish neither.
1: Yeah, it it never works out well and you know examples abound. All right, so what do we have? We have one more, one more habit to go over. Eat Individually. So, um, you know, obviously we're taking a hard right turn here in a way because the first four habits are kind of one size fits all. Um, they establish a, you know, a universal framework that, all, you know, for diet that all of us need to operate within in order to get optimal results. But obviously, you know, no two... Human beings, no two endurance athletes are exactly the same, you know, genetically, metabolically, uh, just in terms of their their history, um,
0: you know, as
1: as athletes, um, you know, their circumstances are different. You, you know, this coaching people, just you, you can't you can't give people cookie cutter programs and expect people to, you know, you know, excel equally. Uh, on them. So, and it's the same with diet. Um, and this is what, you know, one thing I found with elite endurance athletes, I guess, you know, earlier you asked, was there anything surprising? You know, it surprised me just how tuned into their bodies. A lot of these athletes are, and that may sound like a platitude, but I really mean it. (laughs) Like these people are tuned in and that's one of the reasons they eat enough that they do thread that needle is because they're not, they're not counting calories by and large. Um, they're just, they, they know when to put the fork down.
0: Um, you know, that reminds me of, it reminds me of, uh, you know, faster runners generally have a much better sense of, uh, their pace as well. So they can get on the track, they can just bang out, you know, intervals at a predetermined pace much more easily. You know, I have, I have runners who, you know, maybe they've only been running for a year, so their training age is very low and they'll do reps on the track and, they will vary so much in pace even though they're supposed to all be the same and i think you know the more you run the more you you know go down this journey of of getting in better shape and and all that really entails which is much more lifestyle oriented than i think we give it credit for um you know you get to know how your body um let me put that a different way. You get to better read the signals that your body is giving you, whether that's pacing on a run or how hungry you are, or even what type of food your body's craving at a certain time.
1: Yep. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. And, but I think there's also something else going on there too, which is a kind of uh, self-trust that you see with the elites that, that may come from just being talented and uh, winning a lot, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, they, they get, you know, cause you know, obviously if you, if you have the genes to be an Olympian, you kick butt from the very first time you, you know, hit the track. Um, and, and that, that experience, you know, has psychological ramifications where you, you just, these athletes tend to have, um, a, a high degree of self-trust where they, 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 they look they're They're not always looking outside themselves. Like, what should I do? What's he doing? What's she doing? You know, they're like, I kick butt. I'm really good, and I'm going to like ask myself, um, you know, how much mileage is enough and how much is too much, or how much speed work is enough or how much is too much. And yes, like what I should eat and what I shouldn't eat. So, you know, I, I saw a lot of this, and it was it was it was an eye opening part of the research process. You would see like some weird stuff that <laughs> some of these athletes would do. Again, you know, they're they're doing all the universals, eat everything, eat quality, all that but they they also have idiosyncrasies you know I, I there was um uh one tour de france cyclist whose diet uh he gave me like a just a 24 hour diet recall and there was he he didn't eat any meat or fish and I, so i asked him about that i'm like are you a vegetarian and he said no i eat meat every other day
0: <laughs> interesting
1: <laughs> yeah and he's like you know what i found is like when i eat more than that i gain weight but if i eat less than that i lose power and you know i thought that may or may not be true, <laughs> but he believes it, you know, it's true to his experience. And, you know, he, he was a tour de France cyclist and, and so you can't argue with, with the results. So there are kind of a lot of examples of, of, of that where just these, these athletes are always, always connecting cause and effect. And if anything goes wrong, they leave no stone unturned. And, and sometimes they'll come up with you know, slightly harebrained theories or even like kind of superstitious little things that they do. Um, but even that, you know, there's the, the whole placebo effect or whatever, but anyway, the, 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 general point is they pay attention and they, and that, that's the thing. Like you can't just like read my book and start practicing the first four habits and necessarily solve every, every problem or just, or just, you know, it, it's a, it's a, you know, a done deal. It's, it's a finished project. It's sort of, you know, for everyone, it should be the beginning of a journey you've done, you know, you know, most of the heavy lifting, if you, if you, you know, adopt the first four habits, but still just as you can with your training, you know, you can, um, just keep learning and refining and finding like little ways to keep doing things more efficiently, more effectively. And you, obviously you never stop changing. You age, you gain, you know, training experience, racing experience. So it's kind of an evolution to me. It's kind of fun. I I like the idea of not standing still either with with training or or with diet but there is a responsibility that comes with it you you do have a responsibility to pay attention to yourself
0: yeah it's like the same reason why i tell all every runner to keep a training log because if something does go wrong or if something goes really right you should be able to look back on what you've done in the last several months to see you know was it was there you know a single event that contributed to you know whatever failure you're experiencing or uh, was it, is it a series of poor decisions, you know, because training errors are usually the the number one cause for running injuries, for example. And I think if someone is, you know, dealing with diet related issues and you know, keeping a food log might be a really beneficial activity for them to do just so they can get a sense of patterns and, uh, you know, long term trends. If they were to do that for a couple of weeks, uh, I think I think it might be very illuminating.
1: Yes. And at the very least, uh, troubleshoot, you know, so, you know, if you don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth or, you know, if you're an ain't broke, it, ain't broke, don't fix it type, that, that's fine. But at the very least, when you have a setback, go into no stone unturned mode and, you know, think about, you know, what's the most likely culprit, you know, test it out, elimination diet or whatever it is. Uh, so you can see, you know, is that the solution? If not, try hunch, hunch number two you know it's valuable you know just for speaking for myself i've always been very very injury prone um, and and so i would I, you know earlier in my running life i would just get injured all the time and because i wasn't about to quit running you know i had to start to figure out ways to stay healthy and and you know the things that i found that worked for me weren't necessarily things that doctors told me to do or that a bunch of other people were doing so some of the stuff i do with, with my training my overall approach to running out to stay healthy are just it's my own recipe. But guess what, you know, I, I am healthier now. And so it, it was well worth the effort to just kind of go on that, that, you know, individual journey of troubleshooting.
0: Yeah, learn learning more about your body and how you respond to any kind of physical stress is never a bad thing to to do, you know, undertaking that kind of of a you know fact-finding mission, if you will, is is I don't think ever going to be a, a, a poor decision on your part. Having more information, more knowledge about how you individually respond to training stresses or individual diets or or anything like that, uh, I, I think can yield a lot of really beneficial um, progress for yourself. Now, Matt, let's um, you know, it, I I think we've talked a lot about <clears throat> you know the. Uh, diets of elite runners and what we can learn from that. But you didn't just include that type of information in your book. You really reviewed a lot of the latest studies on diet and fueling for performance. Can you walk us through some of the conclusions of that research that you found? Yeah. So um, just to
1: take a step back, you know, there's one of the problems with uh, one of the reasons there's so much confusion about how to eat uh, for endurance fitness out there is because, it's possible to use pseudoscience to promote any kind of crazy way of eating. And that's the reason I took the approach I did with my book is said, you know, let's bracket science for a second and take a different approach to this. Uh, You know, just more of a, you know, like a best practices approach or a real world approach. It's like, let's just, let's just do what seems to be most successful in the real world. This does not mean that I don't believe in science. And ultimately, you know, science just has a higher standard of proof. You know, if you see a pattern in the real world, well, that's great. And that may be enough for you as an athlete. You know, if you're not a scientist, you don't want to just wait until there's proof necessarily to start doing something that might be effective, but still, you know, science is, it's very valuable. So, uh, as you suggested, there's a, there's a good measure of both, uh, uh, you know, the, of the real world stuff and the science in the book. Um, in terms of like, you know, new stuff that, that, uh, you know, could be a valuable, uh, could could be a value, value to people listening. Um, I referred to it earlier, some of the um, selective carbohydrate restriction stuff um, is, it's not stuff that I myself was doing It's recently as just, you know, a few years ago. Um, and, and so what you see there is that, you know, science, you know, there's just, it's a growing body of research. There isn't a ton out there, but there seems to be pretty compelling evidence at this point that, while a carbohydrate-centered diet is is optimal, uh, you know, if you're training for endurance, um, you know, doing w- with some frequency, you know, one, two, three times per week, depending on how often you train, uh, workouts where you intentionally go into it, you know, sort of glycogen depleted, um, kind of the opposite of what you would think you're normally supposed to do. Um, it's a little bit like it's like a nutritional parallel to altitude training where you – you don't go to high altitude because you can run faster. You go to high altitude because it's harder to run fast. And, and putting that different kind of stress on your body stimulates adaptations that wouldn't occur at sea level. Seems to do the same thing when you do either a, a long, uh, low-intensity workout or, or short, high-intensity workout, interval-type workout in that glycogen-depleted de- state. Um, the mistake is, you know, you'll, you'll, get, you know, the ideologues who are like, that means, you know, it should be all low carb all the time. No, it doesn't. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, you know, it's not, it's a, you know, it's a puzzle of many pieces and you don't want to neglect any of them. But so, you know, the studies are, are compelling and then you see, uh, you see it everywhere now. It's, you know, pretty much everywhere I went except, well, here's what's interesting. You know, so you'll see, you know, elite cyclists, they'll do this, you know, once, twice, maybe three times a week at most. They 'll do a long ride or an interval workout, uh, having deprived themselves of carbohydrate in their diet beforehand uh, the only place I was going to say where I didn't see this being done you know at the very highest level was Kenya, but they actually have always done it in a de facto kind of way because in in Kenya they just it's part of their their the culture of the sport theres they get up in the morning and they go for a run on with no breakfast, so even though Kenyan runners eat an incredibly high carbohydrate diet they actually are they do one one run every single day that's sort of uh you know carbohydrate restricted and then they just guzzle carbs the rest of the day and you know so their second run is you know um carb fueled and their third if they do one is is also so that's something that i, I you know i do it now and and i recommend it's it's good for uh for everyone
0: now is this type of fueling approach more beneficial for different types of runners? So for example, if you're training for a marathon, are you going to get more bang out of your buck for this type of approach or, you know, is it, it can it also be used for someone training for say a fast 5k?
1: Yeah, it seems to be uh beneficial for uh everyone. Um because, you know, you know, carbohydrate is it, it it's a critical critical fuel um or pretty much the full gamut of, of distances, um, and but kind of in, in different ways. So the you know the shorter you go, you know, if you're if you're a miler, you're burning all carbs in, in that race. um But so where where the differences come in, and again, like this, we haven't sort of you know, science has, or and even you know in in the real world, we haven't gotten to the point where we've we have this all figured out. It's kind of a new thing, but. What I recommend in the book is that if you if you specialize in shorter distances, what you might want to do is do – if you do only one thing, do carb-fasted interval sessions. Um, and if you're, you know, a, an ultra-distance racer, maybe if you do only one thing, do carb-fasted, you know, long runs. Um, but, you know, it remains to be seen, well, maybe a mix of both is the best. Definitely, you know, I see that. And some of the, the elite runners out there, they will do a little bit of both. Um, but th- that, that's just there's some common sense to that. You know, if you're a short race specialist, do the carb-fasted interval workouts, long distance, do the carb-fasted long runs, and, and maybe a mix of both. My, I myself, just because I, I only care so much at this point <laughs> about my own performance, but I, I don't like the idea of doing carb-fasted intervals, so I only do carb-fasted uh, long runs. But it's been, it's pretty it's pretty eye opening. Like I've gone as far as 29 miles without having had a gram of carbohydrate since dinner the day before, um, with no problems. Very so interesting. Cool. It, yeah. it
0: does it does sound very much just like the principle of training specificity. You know, shorter distance specialists should you know put a little bit more stress on their shorter distance, faster workouts, you know, by doing it in a slightly carb depleted state, whereas, you know, marathoners, ultra marathoners maybe want to do that for their long runs. But, you know, just like anything, it's probably not an either or black or white type of scenario. It's more, let's do both, but the shorter distance runners need to just focus a little bit more on those, those faster interval workouts without any carbohydrate where, you know the the longer distance runners should focus a little bit more on those long runs
1: but you know the point that that people should understand is they, they should not confuse this with the the whole like high fat low carb movement because the the benefits of doing this the the selective carb fasted workouts has nothing to do with improving your fat burning ability nothing at all it's you know all you're doing is so what we talked earlier about some of the uh the triggers to upregulate genes that stimulate adaptations that make you fitter. Well, one of the main triggers is glycogen depletion. So by finishing a workout or, you know, by doing the latter stages of a workout in a glycogen depleted state, that's a powerful stimulus for favorable genetic adaptation. So it stands to reason that actually starting a workout occasionally in that state, so that you spend more time struggling through that Uh, added stress will just give you a little, little bit of a a boost, you know, not unlike the, you know, the, the altitude thing. But the thing to understand is it's precisely because that's more stressful that it's beneficial. So you don't want to do that all the time that that should not be the norm for you. It's something it's like seasoning (laughs) for your training.
0: Yeah, I like that. And and I think that's a trap that a lot of runners fall into is they find out about something that is helpful, so then they, they then want to do it all the time. This you is know? the key, the key. <laughs> yeah, it's the secret. It's the trick. But there are no secrets or no tricks. There's just principles that we can follow. And I think, you know, your your altitude analogy at least for me, that really resonated with me because, you know, it, it just makes a lot of sense. You know, elite runners go to altitude to train to get a specific stimulus that will help them in their racing. But they're not always up at 8,000 feet or 7,000 feet because they do need to get in some some workouts and some training at their, quote, normal sea level paces. And I think that's the same thing when it comes to training in a carb-depleted state or, you know, if, if another example is if you're doing a long run, uh, and you're training for a marathon. You know, let's do some goal marathon pace running at the end of that long run. Why? Because it's harder. You're already in a pre-fatigued state. You're already in a slightly uh, carb-restricted uh, uh, state as well, because it's the end of a of a very long run. And you know that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to do a fast finish long run every seven days or every week. You know, you, you need to be a little bit more strategic with things. But you know, the idea is we're going to do a little bit of these stressful things in a, in a strategic way to help with, you know, these runners adaptations, uh, kind of on a, on a long-term basis.
1: Or if you're Alberto Salazar, you throw a weighted backpack on someone for a long run.
0: (laughs) Has he done that? My goodness. (laughs) That's a new one for me.
1: Yeah. Um, I remember Karen Goucher telling me about that. I don't know if he still does it, but yeah. (laughs) Goodness. That's I mean, same principle,
0: right? you just, you know, now you're fat. Go do your lungs. <laughs> right. Let's make it really hard. Um, let's let's switch gears a little bit. I, I have I have an interesting question to to close things out. Um, let's speak a little bit more generally is, you know, we've talked a lot about eating and fueling for performance, but let, is general health, you know, let's say for longevity and fueling for performance, are, are, are those two things mutually exclusive or, or can they coexist?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, if you talk to, you know, five different quote unquote experts, you would, you would get different answers. My take is that, um, you know, endurance fitness overlaps 90% with overall health. And it's part of, you know, it's part of, has to do with how I define health. I think that how fast you can run a marathon is a really good definition of health (laughs) because I mean, what is health to me? Like one way to look at it is like, how far away from you, how, how away are you, how far away are you from being dead? <laughs> well, if you can do a lot with, to me, like the more functionally you can do with your body, the healthy you are. Um, and yes, there's, there, there's a, a curve here. Um, there's a name for it. I can't remember it. I'm slipping my mind, but the idea is like, you know, when, you know, obviously if you're pushing the edge of performance, you are on a razor's edge and, and, you know, you're more likely to get, Uh, sick, you're more likely to get injured. So clearly, um, you know, there's a point of diminishing returns and then even a point of negative returns. But what I find, and I think too many people don't recognize this or or believe otherwise, that, you know, elite endurance athletes by and large are really healthy. And especially the, the ones who have long careers are the ones who kind of look at it that way, is that, you know, being in a high performance state is not inimical to being to being healthy. So I, I see a great deal of overlap. And I, I think I, I recommend that perspective for every athlete that I don't have to have at, at no point in, in the search for peak fitness, should I do it at the expense of health? I think you can have both.
0: Yeah, it's almost it's almost annoying how much we agree with each other, Matt. But I think <laughs> I, what what I've always said is that health comes before fitness. And you know, of course they're related, but you know, you can't be in great shape if you're unhealthy, you know, if you're a hundred pounds overweight, you're not going to have a high level of fitness. So, you know, you have to prioritize on the health first and get that right. Um, because, because that's super important.
1: Yeah. But again, you know, there are others out there and people who, you know, know more science than I do, who who disagree. They, they, they kind of beat the, the fit, but unhealthy drum, um, and, but I just think that there, that's mostly illusion that, like, you know, if you start to go off the rails with your health, like, yes, you can continue to perform at a high level for a certain amount of time. But then, you know, there's going to be a canary in the in the coal mine. So it, that's mostly illusory. So, yes, you, you and I do agree on this point.
0: Don't you think that's like that disagreement there is is because of that? Extra 10%. You know, when you said there's 90% overlap, the extra 10% is when we get into running 140 miles a week. Yeah. You know, 100. Running is great for you, but like you said, there's a point of negative returns and maybe 140, 150 miles a week uh, for the elite runner is starting to get unhealthy. You know, like you said, yeah. your immune system is gonna start being depressed. Um, you know, you're a much higher risk of injury. Uh, you know the, the body. I don't think, for me personally, this is just my opinion. I don't think the body is really built for 150 miles of competitive training every single week. I think that's that's the extreme that I think a lot of people think about when they think, "Oh, running isn't healthy." But in fact, it's it's just the extreme of it. Just like the extreme of anything, any healthy behavior can be taken to an extreme.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I tell non-runners all the time. Uh, r- training for a marathon is good for you it's running the marathon that's bad for you
0: <laughs> oh that's a great point that's a great way to think about it actually <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot, Matt. This was a lot of fun for me. I'm always excited to chat with you. And you have such a balanced approach to running and nutrition that, that has always resonated with me very strongly and uh, really enjoy all your books. So thanks for being able to consistently write one or two every single year. I hope you uh, you continue that because uh, they're they're usually up on my bookshelf. I have no plans to stop, Jason. Wonderful. Wonderful. So thanks again for being here. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And there we have it. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Matt and took away a few new ideas on how you can improve your nutrition to recover faster and better fuel your workouts. Thanks again to our sponsor, Generation UCAN, a fueling product that is a patented cooking process for cornstarch. Why is that important? Well, it creates a starch that has no sugar, and it works very differently from anything else on the market. They're super starch, as they call it. It won't cause any stomach or GI distress, and it won't cause a crash when you're out there on a long run or competing in a race. It's a more complex carbohydrate, so you don't have those Cookie Monster cravings after your next big workout. I've been using both their regular powder mix and also the mix with added protein with great results in my own workouts and long runs. It does mix a little thick, but, you know, considering how well it works, that's fine with me. Check out their tropical orange flavor for my personal favorite flavor. And Generation You Can is also doing something really special for you guys. Use code STRENGTHRUNNING, all caps with no space, for 15% off any product at generationyoucan.com/.store. And the really cool thing here is that for anybody using the code this week, the week of March 20th, they'll send you a signed photo of Dathan Ritzenhain, our previous guest from episode 19. Great stuff for you running nerds. So enjoy the product, enjoy the discount, and I hope you're one of the lucky runners to get an autographed photo of Ritz this week. And finally, before you go, I haven't asked in quite a while, so here's my shameless ask. If you enjoy this podcast, I would absolutely love and very much appreciate an honest review on iTunes. This show is mostly a labor of love, and if I see reviews, I know to keep making more episodes. Thanks again for listening, guys. Until next time.